Cricket ACT acknowledges the Ngunnawal people, who are the traditional custodians of the land upon which we meet and play, and pay our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal nation, both past and present. We also value the contribution that other diverse cultures, identities and lifestyles make to our region, which ultimately enhances the richness of our society and cricket community. For me, it, it was that game in Bendigo that, that um, probably started my career, if I'm, if I'm perfectly honest. I, I remember being on the field that day. I think we're well, three for not many, and the great Dean Jones was at mid-on, and he's sort of sitting there a little bit in awe as a 17, 18-year-old kid, and he walked across to me, and I thought, I wonder what he's going to say of a, a young kid from Canberra just trying to learn his craft. And he just looked me in the eye and said, you don't deserve to be on the same field as me. <laughs> And I sort of looked looked back at him and thought, "Wow, um, what, how do I respond to that?" And he turned his back and, and walked away. And I thought, "Hang on a minute, it's game on here now. This is we've got our opportunity to, to play on on this stage." And, and we're lucky enough um, that day. In the end, um, Dino didn't deserve to be on the same field as us. What a way to start the sixth and final episode on a look back on the first 100 years of cricket in the ACT with one of the absolute greats, Brad Haddon, who started his career in Canberra. More of Brad Haddon and others in this episode where we take a look at the period from 2005 to 2022. Highlights include the rise of the women's game and the international cricket matches that came to Canberra as the Monica lights were turned on. The ACT Meteors were launched while some of the greatest ever players from Canberra emerged. I hope you enjoy this episode as ACT Cricket raises its bat for a wonderful century of cricket. The installation of floodlights at Marnica Oval was to be one of the most significant advances in the history of cricket in Canberra. The six 47 metre high structures were used for the first time on January the 29th, 2013, when the Prime Minister's Eleven took on the touring West Indies. The new lights were part of a broader upgrade of Canberra's premier oval facility, which also included the installation of a permanent video screen and additional seating, boosting capacity. The planning for lights at Monica Oval was a hard fought battle first getting a mention on the Monica Oval Master Plan in 1996. Director at the time, Ian McNamee, explains it was quite a battle to flick the switch. Oh, it was, and ACT cricketers had a lot to do with Monica Oval. In fact, it was the first sporting organisation to be asked to look after and manage a facility in uh, sporting facility in Canberra, which was from the uh, old federal government at that time, and that was run by the what was known as the Monica Oval Board of Management, which was all run by um, uh, the ACT Cricket Association. We were conscious of lights. We had lights uh, on the side of our plans, but we didn't at that stage want to uh, Im impede what we had. That unfortunately didn't go ahead because of uh, a, a bureaucratic change, and um, so it didn't happen at that time. But uh, there was another uh, look at it again in 98, and that, at that stage, the Oval was being run by the Monica Oval Management Company, which was a, a, a strong alliance between uh, AFL and uh, ACT Cricket. Now, from AFL, there was Alan McKinnon and Brian Quaid and uh, Gary Goodman and myself for representing ACT Cricket. In 1998, we both we pulled our money after being moved off. Uh, Bruce Stadium by the government, and we agreed that uh, we would pour the money into Barney Oval. But the actual lights themselves was, uh, you know, everybody said you would never get lights at Barney Oval. However, at the PM lunches for three years, uh, Julia Gillard was there, and she was she was a lady in great company. Both uh, she and uh, her partner at the time, Tim Madison, uh, were uh, very keen on sport, and Tim was a great supporter of cricket in Canberra. So at the lunches, I would give my speeches and talk about how great the Oval was, and it would be great if we had lights. But, uh, one day at an AFL game, which was between um, uh, the GWS team and her Bulldogs team at Marnica Oval, she got up and spoke. And uh, I'd been a guest. I was a guest there, of course, being on the on the board. And uh, she announced that 
she put money aside for $2.5 million for lights at Marnica. Completely out of the blue. Nobody knew about it except after a speech is finished, um, overwhelmed with the number of people that came over, uh, initially Tim, and I think he was the only person that knew she was making that announcement. And uh, Ted Quinlan was came along, the uh, former Chief Deputy Minister, Chief Minister of the ACT and Treasurer, and he said, and his words still ring in my ears, he said, McNamee, I told you you'd never get lights, congratulations. And uh, because it came, or the first uh, approach came from the uh, federal government, the ACT government got into action and uh, they were up within eight months of that particular announcement. So wow. it was... Uh, it was done very quickly, and uh, there was also support there, obviously, from Andrew Barr in a big way, uh, Katie Gallagher, Kate Lundy, uh, and James Sutherland from Cricket Australia. They got done, and it's made. As I always said, that was what we needed to put ACT cricket completely on the map. Without lights, Monica Oval just won't have the appeal that, it, that it's currently got. The design of the lighting structures were unique, with the curved shape giving them a different look to traditional light towers at other venues around Australia. Design criteria was set by the National Capital Authority to ensure the lights blended into the inner south suburb. Total cost of the lighting project was $5.347 million, jointly funded by the ACT Government and the Federal Government. Each tower contains four different types of light, wide, medium, narrow and extra narrow, which are fanned out to ensure an equal coverage on the playing surface. Precautions were taken to ensure minimal spill to the surrounding area. Another significant development at Marnica Oval took place in the 2005-06 season with the expansion of the net facilities the original area, which housed eight turf pitches and two synthetic wickets, was upgraded and increased to 12 turf pitches and four synthetic pitches. Half the pitches were laid with legend cooch to replicate the northern pitches in Australia, while to match what the southern states use, Santa Ana was laid on the other half. The development of Marnica Oval has been closely aligned with the talented team of head curators who have often, against the odds, been able to continue the improvement of the ground, creating the reputation as one of the finest boutique cricket grounds in Australia. One of these curators was Brad Van Dam, who commenced a 13-year stint at Monica Oval in 2008, taking over from Marcus Pamplin, who had moved to Hobart to look after Belreve Oval. Van Dam hit the ground running and in 2013 became the head person overseeing the reconstruction and relaying of the playing pitches and the outfield, as he explains. So Brad, when you took over the head curator role, what was the plan of attack? Well, for me, it was you know just running and trying you know, to do the best job I can as a sort of young curator coming from Sydney, working at the SCG and being under Tom, Tom Parker, and this being my real first, first job as a head curator in in charge of a larger ground in, in the country, or at least a prestigious ground in, in the country. So it was about, you know, knowing what types of soil I was using, the climate, the grass species, know who's who in the zoo, what needs to be done and where, where we need to get to. So can you explain what the process was to get the ground and then the wicket to the stage you could host elite cricket content? The, on the ground had hosted elite cricket. They hosted a... Um, couple of World Cup matches, which had a few of the lower-ranking teams and so on. Yeah, uh, We've had a few Shield games, and back back in the day, we had a Mercantile Mutual Cup team, which was ACT Comets. The ground it always has hosted first class, but it was about cricket ACT and the ACT government wanting to host men's international being the uh, Australian team to play, play in Canberra, and that was their – it has been their goal for many, many years. So um, that sort of process sort of started with, you know, in, in the background, I suppose, the ACT government doing a lot of work in the way of what they need to do to the ground and to the whole, to the surface and to the ground to play host to the men's, Australian men's team was a big ticket item that, that, that they wanted. So the first thing was the ground had to have lights. 
Yep. Um, because um, for the Australian men's team to come to Canberra to play, it was going to be a international one-day match or a, I don't think T, T20s were around then, but it had to be played as a day, day-night fixture. I think that needed to be done. And and also at this time, I think we'll sign a deal with the ICC to host the World Cup back in the day. I'm too sure that the year it was, but we had to have lights then as well to host those games as day-night day fixtures. So all those boxes had to be ticked. So this was all, I suppose, in the background. Some, some of it was unbeknownst to me about what the ACT government was doing in the background with Cricket Australia and Cricket ACT in the um, – I was just the um, – the curator and the curating team that that delivered these events, which is you know, which is a great thing that we sort of grew unbeknownst to everyone. We just grew with the ground growing, you know, gaining the lights, and then also um, for to host the ICC World Cup in that year, we had to have the ground had to be a free drain surface. So the actual surface was then ripped up completely and then re- relayed with the new free draining. Soil profile, new turf, new wicket square, which was ended up being a little bit bigger from five pitches to seven pitches and yep. so on. And I also made the ground slightly smaller, which then accommodated more spectators as well. And so this was all a process over the years, getting the um, ground ready to host all, host all these fixtures. Hey, mate, just speaking of curating and, and when you're talking about Canberra, there's a, a, a very famous Australian off-spinner worked alongside you for about three years at Marnock Oval, Nathan Lyon. How was that time? Yeah, those times when when I started, Nathan was already working for um for the curation team and cricket ACT, and also playing for the Comets at the time. He was was employed by uh, Marcus Pamplin, who's the head, head curator down there at um, Bell River Oval in Tassie. So yeah, it was great. You know, he was a great young guy, very knowledgeable, very enthusiastic in the curation part of the game, and also very. Very good cricketer and a cricketer that actually, you know, a guy that actually wanted to do his best both in cricket and the curation side of things. Brad, did he ever lean towards maybe just a little uh, bit drier surface to suit him if he was having a game? Well, yeah, the last three years I had him, he was mainly doing his pitch preparation up there at uh, Damson Oval for Western Districts. So that was his, his, his home ground and I'm sure he was captain at the same time and the cu- curator. And the main spinner, so he did. Um, he did like his Jamison Oval to be a little bit, bit more partial towards him. But yeah, no, he no, he was you know he knew what he needed to do as a curator. He did do a bit of the pitch preparation for a few Comets games, but most of the time, you know, he couldn't do the lead up or he was away playing cricket. So yeah, but he was good. He was you know, I had him earmarked to step up eventually and become the two IC. But he had other ideas and went to South Australia, spread his wings, hopefully as a, as a cricketer, but for, first and foremost as a curator at that stage. He was you know, trying to, mm. you know, he needed a job down there. So he went down to, to South Australia and also got a job with the SACA. The rest is history. The entry of the ACT Meteors into the Women's National Cricket League and Cricket Australia T20 Cup for the 2009-10 season was the most significant happening for some time in the nation's capital. Respected Riverina cricket identity, Martin Garoni, was appointed coach with Chris Britt returning from Adelaide to be captain. To be eligible for the Meteors, players had to be playing in Canberra, hence the reason Britt made her return from Adelaide. In the first season, the Meteors finished third in both the 50-over and T20 competitions. The inaugural squad consisted of Chris Britt, Leonie Coleman, Laura Wright, M. Preston, Charlotte Annaveld, Amy Harris, Hannah Stanley, Kate Owen, Sarah Hungerford, Rebecca McRae, Leanne Davis, Amy Jason Jones, Georgia Elwis, Caitlin Rolston, Lisa Cushett, Zoe Cook, and Sally Moylan. Almost half the squad had been based in Sydney or other areas. A highlight of the inaugural season was playing at the MCG as a curtain raiser to a big bash game in front of 15,000 spectators as the Meteors beat Victoria to make it an even finer occasion. Chris Britt topped the batting with 458 runs while Georgia Elwis led the wickets with 16. Overall, since the Meteors started playing in the domestic competitions, they've won 66 matches and lost 85. Their finest achievement was runner-up in the 2014 Australia Women's T20 competition, 
After upsetting the New South Wales Breakers in the semi-final, the Meteors lost the final against Queensland in Perth. The leading run scorer in this period is Chris Britt with 3,131 runs. That include the highest ever score made by a Meteor batter of 145. Current skipper Katie Mack is next with 2,498 runs with four centuries. The leading wicket taker is also Chris Britt with 84 wickets, just ahead of Sam Bates with 72. Laura Wright with 56 catches and 32 stumpings has been the most successful wicketkeeper. When it comes to T20 club cricket from 2005-06 season to the end of the 21-22 season, the Premiership victories were dominated by two clubs, Tuggeranong Valley with six titles and Eastlake with five. In the limited over competition, it was Eastlake the dominant force, winning six Premierships. Their title in 2005-06 was its fourth Premiership in a row. Western Districts matched this when they won four in a row from 2015-16 to 2018-19. The SJ Moore Medal is awarded to the Player of the Year in ACT Women's First Grade. Western District's Zoe Cook won four in a row from 2015 to 2018 to make her the most awarded medal winner. Beckmar and Chris Britt have both won the award three times. Erin Osborne, the current head of high performance at Cricket ACT, retired from domestic cricket in March 2022 after a stellar career that reached the highest level. Osborne represented Australia in all three formats for a combined total of 121 appearances. They included two test matches, 61 day internationals and 50 T20 matches. Katie Mack and Sam Bates debuted for Australia A in 2014-15, while Maitland Brown debuted in 2018-19. The ACT Comets continued to play in the Cricket Australia Cup matches with Simon Helmet appointed coach for the 05-06 season. Helmet did two years and was replaced by Ashley Ross, who also did two years before being replaced by local ACT star Mark Higgs. The nature of the Comets competition underwent a major change for the 09-10 season with the introduction of the Futures League. Under the new format, matches were reduced from four days to three with an age limit of 23, although up to three players over 23 could play. There was also the introduction of a T20 comp. Two years later, ahead of the 2011-12 season, these matches went back to four days and the number of T20 matches were increased to six. The 2010-11 season was a landmark occasion when the Comets took out the title under Mark Higgs' coaching and captaincy. In the 14-15 season, the MOU between Cricket New South Wales and ACT Cricket saw the change of the Comets team to a combined ACT New South Wales countryside, with, at times, just three players in the side who were playing in the ACT Cricket Association competition. Before the start of the Futures League's matches that season, players selected from ACT were fortunate enough to play two games against visiting nations, Afghanistan and Ireland, who were in Australia getting familiar with Australian playing conditions ahead of the World Cup. The Comets, while losing all three games, performed very well, making 266 from 48 overs against Afghanistan, who passed the score in the final over, seven wickets down. The highlight, though, of the two games against Ireland was a brilliant 126 from 18-year-old Matt Condon in the Comets' score of five for 305. The Irish passed the total with 10 balls to spare. In the period of this episode, between 2005-06 and 2013-14, the Comets' total matches playing in the Cricket Australia Cup and Futures League totaled 70, winning 20 games, losing 36 and 14 draws. The leading run scorers in this period were two standouts. John O'Dean, 2,210 runs at an average of 34.5 with five centuries from 42 matches. Mark Higgs, 1,973 runs, an average of 33.4, with three centuries in 43 matches. 
Higgs holds the record for the highest score of 218. Mark Higgs was also the leading wicket taker of the era with 92 wickets, averaging 21.9 per wicket, with best figures of 6 for 89. Next best was Ben Oakley with 66 wickets at 25.8, with best figures of 5 for 28. The best bowling figure of the era was Shane Devoy with 9 for 98. Bo McClintock with 32 dismissals was the leading wicketkeeper, while Mark Higgs took the most catches by a fielder with 35. While the Comets still played in the CA Cup matches, the axing from the Mercantile Mutual Cup was a huge blow to Canberra, with former CEO of ACT Cricket for 14 years, Mark Vagano, explaining. Oh, mate, yes, 14 years. It was Look, very good, very privileged to be in a, in a role such as the uh, the CEO for Cricket ACT. And, uh, you know, at the back end of a tumultuous period, obviously, coming in after the um, removal of the com- comments from the Mercantile Mutual, that really had a huge effect uh, on all parts of the business, uh, both the cricket side and the, the business side itself. So I guess, you know, some of the, the things was firstly getting Cricket ACT solvent to make sure that, we survived because, you know, a lot of sponsors dropped out. We had to really work hard to, to keep the cost down and uh, basically run on the, the small of an oily rag to get ourselves into a um, a better uh, financial uh, position. So Barry Mewitt, who was the treasurer at the time, and myself, you know, Barry was, was fantastic, great mentor, uh, a great uh, a life member and, uh, you know, great, uh, great treasurer uh, that he was. So then rekindling the grade cricket, we lost 33 first grade cricketers out of, 88 uh, for eight teams by 11, you know, just a, a very loose look. We lost 33 players either went to Melbourne, Sydney, other places in the state to try their luck, went back to country regions because, of course, there wasn't first-class cricket there. So it was a huge sort of a, a huge realignment and, and finding the cricketers and building confidence. Competition itself was kind of like going through um, the stages of mourning. You know, that was a real challenge to, to get the confidence back to build. That's where we were so lucky with what happened in this time and that really the high-performance program from the age area. So Andrew Dawson obviously was really integral in this and then all the other people uh, that we, we hired because really what we did with Cricket Australia was say, okay, we want to be a talent hotspot. We wanted to find players that others were missing out on. We very much concentrate on that both locally in the regional New South Wales. We finished up in that period, uh, became very, very competitive at under-17s and under-19s. We were being, in a sense, disappointed if we weren't fourth or fifth and, and knocking over one of the, the biggest state or a couple of the biggest states. And, and out of that came a, a production line of players. So yeah, Nathan Lyon, Jason Berendorf, Ryan Carters, Will Sheridan, Mark Divin. At one stage, we had 13 or 14 players under contract around Australia, and that was deliberate about finding the talent, refining it, and the players worked so hard and the coaching staff worked so hard. What's the score? How many do we need? Bowler's name. How many overs left? All part of cricket folklore. And the people who've managed this are the scorers. Without the scorers, we'd have nothing to talk about or validate. The ACT Cricket Scorers Committee was formed in September 2005 in Barrel at the ACT Umpires and Scorers Seminar. The ACT Scorers Committee became part of the ACT Umpires Council in 2008, with the name of the council changing to the ACT Umpires and Scorers Council. The ACT Scorers Committee has responsibility for the appointment of scorers for domestic and international matches played in the ACT and surrounds, including the Prime Minister's 11 match. Several ACT scorers have gone on to international representative duties with Adam Morehouse, Darren Madison, Ramani Shivakumar and Chris McLeod having all scored at test matches. Manika Oval continued to be an excellent venue for top international cricket with an increased allocation of fixturing being awarded to Marnica Oval. Two women's World Cup matches were played in 2009. The installation of the lights at Marnica Oval in 2013 further enhanced Marnica Oval as a destination venue for the world's best cricketers. The 2013-14 Sheffield Shield final between New South Wales and Western Australia was played at Marnica. While in the next season, on a balmy Canberra evening, Australia and South Africa played Game 3 of its five-match ODI series at Marnica Oval. 
Centuries to Aaron Finch and Hashim Amlar were the highlights, while Steve Smith and A.B. de Villiers thrilled the crowd with some breathtaking shot-making. Australia 5 for 329, defeated the Proteas 256. And he gets that through, yes! That's four more. 99 for Aaron Finch. And that'll do it. Aaron Finch goes to 100. Wonderful piece of batting. And look at the joy on the big man from Victoria. 50th and final over. Five for 329 Australia. 100 of the very best from Hashim Abla. And that'll be out. Yes, Aaron Finch has got another catch. At the end of the day, it'll be a win to Australia by 73 runs. A good win in the end. In January 2015, the final of the Big Bash League was played at Marnica Oval under lights with Perth Scorchers defeating the Sydney Sixers in a last ball thriller. For the first ball of the fourth Big Bash final, straight away goes through the cover, just drops short. And an exciting start. Oh, that's in the air. Can we see the first six for the night? Yes, we have. Great strike there from the skipper. Moses now on to 64. On reeks, goes high into the camera sky. No one's back far enough for that unless you're in the crowd. And that's the second six from On reeks, and now this is getting towards a daunting total. That is out of here. Moses. But what a partnership, lads. Henriquez and Carters. Close to 100 runs, and they have kept this game very much alive here at Monica. They're going to need eight off the final over. One to win it. Oh, it his career going, he keeps his team going, Coulton Nile can't believe it. Try for a single, can he throw the stumps down? One of two balls, Whiteman for his first ball, everyone is on the circle, he's bowling! Oh, you can't believe it, Brett Lee's on a hat-trick! He lets Whiteman know he's got one ball left in his career, and he's on a hat-trick! He's gone wicket, wicket, this is, unless it's a super over, the final ball of his career. Look at him focusing. Yeah, he's visualising this Yorker. Come on, Big. He's calling the stunts. For Come one on, more Yorker in his career. Brett Lee steams into Arafat. It's up there. Arafat hits and he's out. Oh, the scorch of the home. They've gone back to back. You cannot believe what you're seeing. They stream onto the field. The run out chance was there. It was misfield of Brett Lee. His career is done. And the Scorchers, in incredible fashion to Canberra, go back to back in a big bash thriller. World class cricket content kept on coming with three matches of the 2015 ODI Men's World Cup pool rounds being played at Marnica Oval. On February the 18th, 11,000 spectators watched. Bangladesh defeat Afghanistan by 105 runs. Six days later, West Indian superstar Chris Gale plundered 215 against Zimbabwe, hitting 16 sixes and 10 boundaries in a 372-run partnership with Marlon Samuels, who finished 133 not out. Zimbabwe, in reply, made 289. Down the ground and it will go for six. Strong area for Chris Gale. He's done it before in this inning. There's a hundred to Chris Gale. That's gone a long way. Short, smashed, and oh, it's gone all the way out of the ground. Oh, he's picked that one up as well. The bowler tried to go full into his legs as opposed to back of the length. That is an imperious shot from Chris Gale. He's enjoying it. A double hundred for Christopher Henry Gale. Gale's record only lasted 25 days when Kiwi opener Martin Guptill made 237 not out against the West Indies in the World Cup quarterfinal in Wellington, New Zealand. On March the 3rd, the run purge continued with South Africa compiling four for 411 against Ireland, who replied with 210. Hashim Amlar made 159 and Faf Duplessis 109. Five years later, there were five matches played in Canberra during the Women's 2020 T20 World Cup. Over a three-day schedule, the five matches were played with England, Thailand, 
Pakistan playing two games, while Bangladesh, South Africa and the West Indies all played one. Australia played its only game at Manuka Oval against Bangladesh, where Alyssa Healy made 83 in their 86-run win. The crowning moment, though, in the history of ACT cricket came on February the 1st, 2019, when the very first test match was played at Manuka Oval between Australia and Sri Lanka. Across 143 summers, just 10 venues have been used to host men's test cricket in Australia. This week, that becomes 11, when Manuka Oval proudly adds its name to that. It's been a long time coming for a ground that was originally built in the 1920s, especially considering that as this century began, the dream of hosting international cricket was never further away as the Canberra Comets lost their spot in the domestic 50-over competition. 10, 15 years ago, I would never even imagine that we'd have high-class international cricket at Manuka. But instead of wallowing, administrators got to work in recognition of vast improvements made, including the installation of award-winning light towers, combined with successfully hosting a series of white ball internationals since 2013, Canberra has been given its chance on this most prestigious stage. But for all that is new, Manuka remains very much a cricket ground rather than a stadium, punctuated by this grand old hand-operated scoreboard. It is named after another hero in this Canberra cricketing story, Jack Fingleton. Obviously a lot of history with the Fingleton scoreboard. It was the previous MCG scoreboard. There's a lot of work that goes into actually putting the scores up. There's uh, 12 scorers in there over the course of the test match. Tim Payne's side contains a hometown hero of sorts in Nathan Lyon. Australia's masterful off-spinner was brought up in the New South Wales rural town of Young, but as a teenager, he was driven two hours each way to play in the nation's capital. Just nine years ago, Lyon was captaining local grade side Western Districts. Higher honours a long way away, an international career but a pipe dream. Then, his day job was working at Manuka as one of the ground staff preparing the wickets. Now, he returns to the ground with 341 test wickets to his name, only three Australians having ever captured more. It's going to be a pretty special moment when we walk out to sing the national anthem, but especially when I get the opportunity to bowl out there. I've got a lot of history on the ground. It's been well documented. It's one of my favourite grounds, a lot of different reasons, but uh, it's exciting. When you get the chance to play, play a lot of friends and a lot of family, it's it's becomes even more special. Well, I think Canberra's come of age. It, uh, the population's obviously growing, cricket's growing here, and I think Manuka's almost a reflection of society. The ground has come of age, it's a beautiful facility, a great place to play cricket, but it's still holding on to that rich history that it has. Definitely, it, it, this is going to be the highlight of Canberra cricket for the last 100 years. In January 2022, Test Cricket returned to Manuka Oval, this time for the Australia versus England Women's Ashes Test. In a thrilling finish, all four results were possible as Australian leg spinner Alana King bowled the final delivery. Australia had earlier made a bold declaration, setting England 257 to win of 48 overs. England took up the challenge and looked to be heading for victory when they were 3 for 218, needing just 39 runs of 48 balls before all the drama unfolded. Both teams are actually in this. It's, it's really exciting. There's a few cracks opening up, which is going to make it really interesting. Hit in front. Has to be. Has to be. And is Darcy Brown. Continues. Another shout. She's on a hat-trick. Darcy Brown. Who can handle their nerve? That is 50 for Nat Siver. Dunkley taking on Sutherland. Gets underneath it. Hooks it over the top. What a strike from Dunkley. Yeah! She goes bouncer, edge through to Healy. She doesn't need the Yorker because she's got Brunt with yet another short ball. Oh, that's and it's a full toss. It is a draw and it is one of the very best test matches we've seen in women's ashes. Long-time curator Brad Van Dam took great pride in showcasing Canberra to the world. I think it's just a combination of a whole whole lot of things, you know, making sure Cricket ACT, ACT government and everyone involved, you know, the creation team, we over-delivered at all times and made sure, I think it, it comes down to like, a lot of people used to have the call of why that game being played in Canberra, why in the ACT, and I used to say, well, why not? Why not here? Like, look at the facility, look at Canberra. We've got everything 
that everyone needs and everyone leaves here saying, geez, that's fantastic. Why why like why why not go back there again? Let's go back there. When when can we get back there? That's my I suppose proudest thing in doing is actually wiping that sort of those comments out of pe- people's mouths and media and all that, just now saying, yeah, Canberra is a fantastic facility and here we are in Canberra. In club cricket, the most dominant men's team for the era between 2005-06 to 2022 was Western Creek Malongolo, with a total of 14 titles, which included seven in two-day cricket. Its premiership win in 06-07 was in fact its fourth in a row. Six one-day premierships and one T20 title. Queanbeyan, with 11 titles, were next best, highlighted by three successive premierships in both two-day and one-dayers between 09-10 and 11-12. West, with nine titles, and Tuggeranong Valley, eight, were other clubs to share success. An interesting winner in the T20 comp was Cricket Albridonga in the 2012-13 season. Queanbeyan became the first ACT-based cricket club to win the prestigious SCG Country Cup when they beat Newcastle side Merriweather by two wickets in a thrilling final at the Sydney Cricket Ground January the 15th, 2012. Veli Dukoski was player of the match with four wickets and an unbeaten 44. The 2007-08 club grand final was an epic contest when West pulled off a stunning run chase against Tuggeranong, who batted first and had compiled 367, with Tom Thornton making 141 and Ashton May 90. Led by a superb 146 not out from 17-year-old Ryan Carters and 66 from Joe Cook, West finished with 9 for 368 to take out the Premiership late on day three. Left-arm spinner Shane Devoy from Tuggeranong won four Robin medals in this era for Player of the Year. Other dual winners in this period were Tom Thornton, Ben Oakley and John Nicholl. In February 2013, Queanbeyan's John O'Dean posted just the second triple century in the history of ACT first grade cricket when he plundered the Ginandera attack to finish with 300 not out. His innings came just four days after he had made 51 or 38 deliveries against the West Indies in the Prime Minister's 11 match. John O'Dean spoke about his triple tonne. February 2013, for only the second time in the history of ACT cricket, a triple ton was scored. You were the man to do it. 17 sixes and 21 fours. Mate, what was your form like going into the game? Look, it's going back a fair while, Robbie. It's, um, it's all about form. I was, I was in pretty good nick, I, I suppose. I, I was played that PM's game earlier in the week against the West Indies and, and managed to to knock a few around the park there. So I was feeling, I was on a bit of a high. I think I just found out I'd secured a big bash contract that, that week as well, which was pretty cool. And, you know, just heading out to Ginadera, I was uh, feeling pretty good about my game and where I was at and yeah, managed to have a little day out. Yeah, look, it's a small, small difference, I suppose, between the, the West Indies full, full pace attack and then Ginadera first grade. <laughs> Although a young Ross Pawson, who's rebound pretty quick now, was... Um, was playing that game. So small adjustments, mate. You just, that's fine. You, with grey cricket, you need to watch the ball a little bit harder. With the ball, it's a bit quicker. You tend to just react and not a lot of movement where you've you got to kind of just be a bit more conscious of your body position in grey cricket and the ball's a little bit slower. So, And I'm assuming you guys won the toss and batted. You mate, The 300 was made in the day. Uh, from memory, we did win the toss and, and bat. I hadn't scored many runs against Jinder in, in, over, over the years, um, so I was probably due, to be fair. And I think, Robbie, sometimes in, in cricket you need a little bit of luck and managed to get a little little bit of luck pretty early on in my innings. So I'm, I'm pretty sure you're well across the story. Um, mm. Yeah, and yeah, once I got that, I, I think I, I don't think I got dropped until I was about 180 again. Uh, there was a few tough ones from, from then, but um, I was seeing like beach balls, let's be honest. Um, towards the back end of when the skipper took the new ball. I'm not sure that was the greatest decision he, he ever made, but <laughs> I'm pretty sure I went from about 200 to 300 in about 16 balls. I'm not really sure, but it felt like a flash. Yeah, 300 is by far the, the, the high score I've made. was well, not out too, from memory. Were you aware that Pete Solway held the record? I think it was around 338. Did you only have a play to go triple figures? Yeah, look, I was, and we, we'd spoken about that during the – kind of as the day unfolded and, 
you know, it would have been nice to knock him off. In hindsight, I would have only needed four or five more balls. Mate, it was a great day. It'll it'll be it'll go down in history, hopefully. And in my brain, I'll never forget it. And I'm I'm speaking to you now, and the boys are having a listen to the story. Um, um, they've heard it a few times. They're starting to ask a few more questions. Maybe one of them can knock it off one day. But um, yeah, definitely a fond memory and one I'll, I'll look back on um, for the rest of my my life for sure. Later that year, Dean made 234 against Western Creek. A month later, Dean made his debut for the Adelaide Strikers, the first of five years with the Strikers. He was a member of the winning Strikers team who beat Hobart Hurricanes in 2018. Oh, Dean gives himself room, just strides across, and as the great Kevin Peterson says, crunch, 12 rows back, and these boys are in a hurry. John O'Dean, 36 from 32. Oh, no, look at that. Is that tier two as well? He's doubled up the slog sweep and the catch. They're pumped up at level two. And what would they be? The strikers are belting them everywhere. Can't complain about the entertainment, even though it's been oh. a short game. And we finished with a six. What a way to finish, will we? Yep, we will. And John O'Dean gets his 50 and the strikers. What a win. New Year's Eve, they have brought the fireworks uh, out in the middle. Tremendous victory. Another star of AC2 cricket was Mark Higgs, a left-arm spinner and punishing left-handed bat who began his career with Queanbeyan and quickly made his way into the Canberra Comets side before playing with both New South Wales and South Australia. A career highlight amongst many was his selection to replace the injured Shane Warne in the Australian team to play in the ICC knockout in Kenya in 2000. Higgs next season made 181 not out against Queensland in the Pura Cup and a four-wicket haul in the Mercantile Mutual Cup against Western Australia. Chances became limited and he made the move to South Australia for the next season. In all, he played 38 first-class games with three centuries and took 31 wickets before moving back to Canberra where he continued to dominate club cricket and forge an impressive coaching career. It was in this era that two of the greatest ever players to play in Canberra, Brad Haddon, 2008, and Nathan Lyon, 2011, made their test debuts. Haddon moved to Canberra as a 12-year-old, where he played junior cricket at Queanbeyan, before moving to ANU, where he debuted in grade cricket, age 16. Four years later, he started his professional career, when he played for the Canberra Comets' first ever side in 97-98. Haddon reflects on his early years and learnings. I actually had a, a really blessed time to, to start my career in Canberra. Where I remember we were lucky enough when the, the comments came in. A lot of guys my age were, were trying to learn their craft in, in grade cricket in Sydney. Um, they are trying to get games in first grade to, to get noticed by state selectors picked in second 11 teams or junior rep teams where when the comments came in, I, I was straight away getting exposure on, on the national stage. I, I got to to grow up learning the habits of what it takes to, to be a first-class cricketer. You, you had guys like Mike Valletta, um, who had been very successful over in the West and had a period of time with the Australian team, teach you about the habits you needed to to play for first-class cricket or international cricket. And, and just to be involved in something brand new that never happened before was exciting. But for me... It, I went into to first grade cricket really young. Um, I had the opportunity to to play at ANU with, with men when I was 14, 15, and, and just probably the accountability around your performance straight away. For, for someone so young to be playing with men, I, I think at a, a young age um, helped you with the, the the habits you created early doors and, and the behaviours that you had to um, learn really, really quick because you're in a performance environment. Someone so young, you, you had to perform to body. If you didn't, you you were you were gone. You you were in you were back down the grades, and so probably from really early, uh, I learned a lot about accountability and, and and performance. So that that's one thing I, I think probably helped me, and, and probably gave me a bit of a foot foot up with a, a lot of other kids my age at that time. They were playing their school cricket and not really getting challenged. Where we, we were getting challenged every week against grown men. And you had guys like Chris Killen, Ken McLeod, Murray Radcliffe and and bowlers like that that, that were testing you every week. So the, the one thing you had to do, you, you had to find a way to perform, even when you were petrified. 
By the time the brilliant wicketkeeper batsman had retired from first-class cricket, he had played 66 test matches, scored 3,266 runs with three centuries at an average of 33, with a top score of 169. He took 262 catches and made eight stumpings. He also played 126 one-day internationals for Australia, as well as 184 first-class matches and 235 list-day matches. What a way to go to do it. What a hundred. He deserved one of the gather. Now Brad Haddon has one in Adelaide. Oh, as he caught it, he has. Brilliant from Brad Haddon. Itch. spectacular stuff. Off spinner Nathan Lyon moved to Canberra from young as a teenager where he played under-17s for ACT as well as club cricket with Western Districts before debuting with the Canberra Comets in 2008 against the South Australian second 11 in the Cricket Australia Cup. While in Canberra, Lyon worked at Monica Oval as a curator. He then moved to Adelaide in 2010 working at the Adelaide Oval and playing club cricket with Prospect and continuing to play for the Comets in the Futures League. Lyon, after playing for the Redbacks in the KFC Big Bash, where he was the leading wicket-taker in the Redbacks title-winning side, made his first-class debut for South Australia in 2011. His amazing rise continued when on August the 31st, 2011, Nathan Lyon made his test debut in Sri Lanka where he became just the third Australian in Test cricket history to take a wicket with his first ball. By the end of January 2023, Nathan Lyon had played 115 Test matches, taking 460 wickets, the third highest by an Australian in Test history. Nathan Lyon, uh, the off-break bowler, looks to the heavens as he's about to bowl his first over in international cricket and Test cricket. Here we go. start to a career. That was a lovely ball first up. Little... Jason Berendorf, a left arm fast bowler, was another who grew up in Canberra who went on to represent Australia in both T20 and one day internationals. Berendorf made his T20 debut versus India in 2017 and his ODI debut also against India in 2019. A career highlight was his five wickets against England at Lords during the 2019 One Day International World Cup. The two clubs we look at in the final episode are Ginandera and Eastlake. First up is Ginandera. And to find out more about the Tigers, I spoke with former club coach and player and life member, Darren Walker. Ginandera Cricket Club uh, essentially covers uh, the West Belconnen area. Uh, the club was formed as a junior club in the early 70s when most of the suburbs in West Belconnen were being built. Uh, the club started to participate uh, as a sub-district team uh, in 75-76. Uh, previously, they were a jun- there was a junior club, um, and the club was then admitted to third and fourth grade in 78-79, and then in 79-80 became a, uh, a full uh, participant in the grade competition along with Western Creek in the same year. Uh, a bit of interest too, there's um, Pollard and, and a quite well-documented history of a Ginandera career club um, that was established in 1854 uh, near Ginandera Station uh, near the village of Hall. Uh, William Davis uh, was a captain and organiser of the club. He was a, a, a pastoralist and a landover and quite a big figure in um, uh, in local history. Um, also credited with being one of the first pastoralists to build a positive relationship with uh, the local Ngunnawal people. Uh, in the initial team, there were two Indigenous cricketers, uh, Bobby Taylor with a keeper and Jimmy Taylor as a batter, are both noted as um, as very uh, as very good cricketers. So that's quite a quite an interesting history. An amazing link to have a club actually called Ginandera established in 1854. We're based at Kipax. Uh, we've got two turf wickets down there. Our training facilities are, are at Kipax too. Um, uh, we also have Reed as a Ginandera home ground. Uh, ground now it's a little bit further away, but with um with high demand and uh, five grades at a women's team and the older junior 
junior comps on turf, um, having the three grounds is a lot of work for the uh, the curators, but it provides us with really good facilities and conditions to, um, you know, for all our players. Walks just a bit of an idea, mate, on how many titles the club has won, in, uh, and just a bit of a snapshot over all the grades, male and female. Um, I'll start with first grade. Uh, we won first grade premiership in 1983-84, 1992-93. We had a very dramatic victory over Queanbeyan at Monica. Uh, we won with an over go at about uh, Steve O'Shaughnessy. He was an Englishman who played for our club, uh, hit the winning runs in the dark, 115 not out. And then we won again in 2018-19. Once again, very exciting. Um, it was a low-scoring affair at Phillip. Uh, a bowler dominated match and we certainly celebrated long and hard after breaking that long drought as well. Overall we've won about we've won twenty two premierships. Um I would say most recently over the past five or six years we've won a predominance of those. It's certainly been the strongest consistent period for uh, for us as a club. Uh, we've had a women's teams re-established it's uh, in about two thousand seventeen and have made some grand finals. And over time who've been some of the greater players to represent the club? Uh, yeah well we've had a number of players gone go, uh, represent the club and got on to play uh, at first-class level. Uh, Wayne Andrews in the 1980s uh, was a Tiger who went on to play for Western Australia, had a long career over there. Uh, Jack Williams, who was a leading first-grade run scorer for a long time at our club, uh, he played for the Comets in the uh, the National One Day Comp in the late 90s. Uh, Graham Cunningham uh, as well was a Tiger in that period. He went on to play for Tasmania. David Dawson, who's a, a junior and, and went from the Tigers, he got picked up by Tasmania and he played for Tasmania in New South Wales for 10 years. Um, now, a test cricketer, Ross Taylor, actually played for the Tigers when he was a kid before he represented New Zealand. Now, he played about three games. He was here for about six weeks. But, you know, mate, you claim the famous ones. And so uh, we're taking uh, New Zealand's test captain and as a Tiger, uh, that, yeah, he's, he's our test player. So, And what about uh, most runs, the wickets, the most games played? Our current captain, Reese Healy, holds a, a number of records. Um, most runs in first grade, most hundreds. Um, scored two, only Blake scored double hundred and he scored two of them. Jack Wilcox, our current uh, club coach, just broke the record for the most wickets in first grade about two weeks ago, which is um outstanding achievement. Jack and his father Dave was a very good player and is um is a coach at Ginindera now. And I think Josh Kentwell's played the uh, the most games in first grade for the club. And well, as you know more than anyone, Darren, clubs need great contributors, volunteers, administrators. Who have been some of those people in that off field capacity? Um, Stone Age Romeo, Charlie Wood uh, was a founding member of the Tigers. Um, Charlie was on the curator at, uh, at Kipax for decades and on the committee. Was president when the Tigers uh, claimed the premiership in ninety two ninety three and uh, and led the celebrations as well. She's been a life member since the eighties and the first grade player of the year award at our club is the Charles Wood Medal. So next bloke, the real Robbie Mack, mate. There could be only one Robbie Max. Uh, he's our curator now. It looks after all our grounds and is assistant curator at Monica. Robbie's debuted for the Tigers in grade cricket in eighty six eighty seven. So he's been around the club for a long time. Uh, the quality of the pitches that he produces has been a huge benefit for us over the last decade or so. Reese, uh, Reese Healy, I mentioned before, uh, was the current Ginadara, and I know he's the ACT captain last year. Look, he's got a record that's unparalleled uh, for us uh, at Ginadara. Think about Reese; he's always had a tremendous impact on the club. He's been on the on the committee; he was the treasurer when he was a teenager. Puts in so many hours into other people as well as his own game. His dad was also uh, president of the juniors and seniors. A couple more, mate. Mick Delaney was very good. He was on played in South Australia for about three years. Um, he came back and captain coached our club for about 2016-17, and that was our real transformation, I think. Um, Matthew Bazusto, most people who know Ginadero would know Bozzy. It's because he looks like Cotton Eye Joe. Um, he's a spirit animal of our club. <laughs> he really is a legend. He deb- debuted in the early 2000s. And he finished last season as a dual premiership winner after seven unsuccessful grand finals over multiple decades. So a couple other people I do want to mention. I mentioned the um, the Wilcoxes and the bowling. Um, Jack's mum, Anne-Marie uh, and Jody Farham do the, uh, do the canteen week in, week out and have done for years. A bloke called John Pryor has been around, I think, too, for about 20 years and has just been a giant of our club. And our current president, Mark Deeker, and his wife, Cindy, 
uh, have ha- once again have led uh, led the club uh, extremely well, and I'm sure I've left many people out, but that's I think a good snapshot across the uh, the many people that make up the club, which is you know the reason the people and the um, the aspects of it, other than performance as well, that that make cricket grade cricket clubs so special. Yeah, it is looking pretty good. We've got six six open teams um, uh, and a women's team. Um, juniors are going fine. They have a strong base from Master Blasters through to Colts and the girls team. We established a uh, you know, women's cricket program well, I think it was about 2017 we're pretty happy with how things are going our numbers are strong our facilities are good um, very harmonious club very enjoyable uh, very enjoyable to be around so yeah things are looking pretty bright for a snapshot on the Eastlake Cricket Club history I caught up with club president and current player Petra Bright We've been around for 100 years. We've had quite a few different names over the years, um, including Eastlake, South Eastlake, Kingston, Manuka, Manuka Yarralumla, Woden, East Canberra, South Woden, Eastern Suburbs, Woden Valley, South Canberra, South Canberra, Eastlake, and then finally again returning to Eastlake in um, about 1989. Um, it was actually by sheer chance that we wound up regaining the name Eastlake when um, one of the committee members at the time approached Eastlake Football Club to start working together. And I think it was since that point that they realised, oh, actually, we we were originally called Eastlake. So it's a really <laughs> great way to get that connection back to the original, ori- well, the original name. Tell us a bit about your training and playing base. Yeah, so our spiritual and physical home, I suppose, has always been Kingston Oval. That's where our main ground is and where most of our... Um, First grade home matches and training takes place. Um, we have a couple of other um, main grounds around the inner south of Canberra, including Deacon West, just next to the Mint, a lovely little oval called Forestry Oval, tucked behind the CSIRO building in Yarralumla. And look, over time, the club, it's had a wonderful history and plenty of success. Just how many titles has the club won over all grades? It's a really great question. I'll, I'll probably answer from the late 80s since we became Eastlake again, although I know that there's been quite a number of premierships before that time. But um, since that um, 1989, uh, we've had three first-grade premierships, 12 women's premierships, 11 second-grade premierships, eight third-grade premierships, four fourth and five fifth-grade premierships. Over time, who have been some of the great players to represent the club? Have any of them, for example, gone on to play first class or test level or came from that environment? And who holds some of the statistical records of the club? Most runs, wickets, games played, etc. So some of our best known, I suppose, international and representative players would be Chris Britt. She played in our inaugural women's season in 2002-03. She's one of the greatest women cricketers to have come out of the ACT. We were also lucky enough to have Neil Fairbrother who played for England back in the 80s and he also played for Eastern Suburbs, which was one of the former iterations of Eastlake. Peter Martin is another player who went on to represent England. Rod Tucker is also someone who played for us in about the year 2000. While he represented ACT in Tasmania, he actually went on to have a very illustrious career as an international umpire. I suppose as far as our statistics goes and the players that stick around the longest, tend to wind up with ones who, <laughs> who um, get some of those big milestones. Gary Molyneux is definitely someone we need to note. At least since 1989, he's played over 400 games. Um, he also played for Easts, I believe, for many years, um, although he may correct me on that one. He's also our top top run scorer, so over 8,500 runs. It's important to mention Mark Diven, who was a player from back in the mid-2000s. He scored... The most runs in a single season for Eastlake with over 1,200 runs in 2004-05. As far as wickets in the men's side, we've got Anthony Meir, who's our leading wicket taker with 413 wickets across uh, 230 matches. On the women's side, then we have Amy Jason-Jones, who scored 3,722 3, from 164 matches. I hate to say it, but I'm actually the highest wicket taker for the club. I just took my 150th wicket before Christmas, so I'm pretty pleased with that effort. Well done you, and I was glad you mentioned that, Petra, because if you weren't, if you were going to be a bit humble, I wasn't, so congratulations. That's a fantastic, <laughs> and, and now the club Thanks president, so, so you're doing your bit. Um, now, who are some of the great contributors, you know, the volunteers, administrators to the club in an off-field capacity? 
So, I mean, I'm sure every club says that, you know, we can't function without the volunteers and the people who make sure that we get on and off the field every every week and every season. Um, Gary Molyneux, who I mentioned before, has been an absolute stalwart of our club for many, many years. He's currently uh, the treasurer on the club. He's been a member of the committee for many years. He plays as well. He's a part-time curator and I like to think of him as a bit of a club encyclopedia. If there's anything we need to know in a hurry, Gary's the man you go to. Cam Allen is someone who I'd like to mention because when I keep harking back to the statistics from 1989, he's the one who put together all of these fantastic stats. He's the one who makes sure that in 100 years' time, we've actually got a strong record of, of what we've been able to achieve up to this point. So, of course, our coaches, people like Adam Tett and Amy Jason-Jones, um, who've been coaching our men's and women's side for years and helping us rack up some of those great premierships. And another person I'd like to mention, as much on a club level and a personal level, but SJ Moore is someone who um, is often talked about for her on-field performances, but we think of her as a bit of a club matriarch. She, The amount of time that she continues to dedicate to our women's side, attending training and games, mentoring our young players and sharing her incredible cricket brain with us. Without her, we wouldn't have a women's club here, I don't think. What is the current status of the club in regard to teams playing in the seniors and juniors? What's a bit of a health check on it? We're doing pretty well. We've actually, um, my predecessor, Damien Eaton, um, had a strong, strong focus on building a one club model. So it's doing really well. It's really thriving and we're concentrating hard on building a good culture between the two ends of the club and really kind of having that one club presence. You know, while we sort of may currently be two clubs on paper, we want to ensure that when the young players who are playing for Eastlake Juniors, that they end up dreaming for playing for Eastlake Seniors and that our players in the Seniors Club have kids who dream of playing for Eastlake Juniors. Well, Petra, it looks like the club is in a great position. It's survived 100 years and may it survive another 100 more. Thank you very much. As part of Cricket ACT's 100-year celebrations, a gala event was held on Saturday evening, February the 4th, where both female and male teams of the century were named, along with the coach of the century, umpire of the century, and scorer of the century. The teams named are, in the female side, Katie Mack, Lynette Cook, Chris Britt, Marjorie Moore, Jodie Davis, Glenda Hall, Laura Wright, Bromwyn Calver, Zoe Cook, Erin Osborne, SJ Moore, and Kim Fazakali. The male team of the century named Cade Brown, Peter Bowler, Peter Solway, Neil Bulger, Michael Bevan, Lorne Lees, Brad Haddon, Greg Irvine, Bill Tickner, Jason Berendorf, Nathan Lyon, Bruce Robin. Coach of the century, Simon Helmet. Umpire of the century, Terry Keel. Scorer of the century, Adam Morehouse. For the final reflection and look to the future, here is current chairman of ACT Cricket, Greg Borer. I think the, um, the centenary of anything uh, is really important. and The, the concept that the, the first sport in the nation's capital to, to hit that milestone is, is, is quite remarkable. Um, and you think about the ebbs and flows of, of what's happened uh, in Canberra, initially the temporary nature uh, of the workforce and at times uh, over the course of history, uh, how many people have come to the region with a view to only staying here for a couple of years and then sort of hanging around much longer, you know, much like many people uh, involved in and around uh, government and whatnot. It's, it is actually remarkable to get through the 100 years to be in a healthy, you know, kicking state, but um, through that whole, the, the ACT sort of cricket association and, and all the various incarnations of it, it really is a reflection of the times of Canberra over those hundred years, you know, searching for their place in the world and trying to carve out an identity for themselves, you know, in a, a federated sport, uh, in a federated country. Um, it hasn't always been easy. And Greg, how do you see the start of the next 100 years where we sit right about now and into the future? Yeah, I think the, you know, the ACT Canberra has really s- struggled on many fronts uh, through 
you know, a lack of scale. Um, and But as we've, we reach this 100-year milestone, we've suddenly got the scale. We've got the scale in terms of uh, population. Uh, we've got the scale um, in, in interest in the game. Uh, and so I think we're in a, a really healthy state. For the first time in a long time, um, we're starting to be more competitive all the way through the various pathways. And, and again, that comes down to the scale. Population approaching 500,000 people um, and, and also the demographic and the, the youthfulness of the population is such that we're growing participation and it's in a really healthy state. Greg, what is important to keep cricket alive and well in Canberra as you see it in the future generations? In a, a really sort of... Uh, interesting time and, and we are in an interesting place. You know, the Territory has two layers of government, uh, is, is exposed to two layers of government only. As a result of that, it's important that the ACT government really leans into grassroots uh, cricket and all the way through the professionalisation of the sport uh, within the Territory to a degree. Uh, there's no sort of professional sport for in the summer for the population to, of, of the ACT to, to come along and watch, uh, whereas there's lots of options in the winter. It's not a sleepy town that everyone leaves in January anymore. Um, it's actually you know, a busy – it's a busy ca- national capital uh, for you know each 12 months of the year now. So that sort of government support is obviously critical. And when I say from the grassroots up, uh, really the, it's the infrastructure. We really do need uh, someone to keep an eye on the sporting fields, the number of sporting fields. The population is exploding in Canberra and we need to make sure that the sporting infrastructure, not just for cricket but for all the sports, um, sort of keeps pace with that in, in terms of numbers of ovals and training facilities and things like that, um, but also with an eye to and not just quantity of, of infrastructure, sporting infrastructure, but also the quality and upkeep of uh, of those facilities. And with that, I think you know the ambition of of ACT cricket will carry the day to to see us develop. And first prize would definitely be to have a a fulsome pathway from you know plastic bat cricket all the way through the juniors uh, and into the professional ranks and exposure to be able to play for Australia through Canberra, uh, which has never been possible previously. But given the scale, uh, given the size of the economy, population, all of those things, it just seems to the time is right now for us to take that next step. Um, whilst every other sport, uh, professional sport, is is constantly looking at expansion and evaluating options, um, cricket uh, needs to uh, not be conservative and not be complacent that their time in the sun over summer will be omnipresent forever. We actually need to um, look at expansion opportunities to ensure the health of the game, not only in in, um, in the ACT, but what contribution can the ACT make to Australian cricket? Um, and I think we are definitely ignoring a really rich resource you know, a growing pool of talent uh, in the ACT uh, if that next step uh, is not supported uh, by the broader cricket, uh, Australian cricket family. Well, that completes the six-part Glory Days podcast episodes that look back and reviewed the first 100 years of cricket in the ACT. A massive thank you to the support of clubs, administrators, players, coaches, umpires and volunteers who help reflect back on an incredible journey from foundation to present. The support of ACT cricket historian Adam Morehouse was essential in making this project possible, as was the wonderful historical writings of the late Don Self and John Cope. Finally, thank you to Cricket ACT CEO Olivia Thornton and her board for supporting the project and making such an incredible history preserved forever. On behalf of myself, Robbie McKinlay and the Glory Days team, it's goodbye and thanks for listening.